Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Osiris. Hey, this is Oteal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time. I am Mike. I'm Oteal. And today we had Dr. Stanley Krippner. Yeah, I got onto this guy, I think, because of a UFO podcast originally. But then I found out that he was friends with Mickey Hart, and he actually did. He's the one that was the originator of this experiment, this ESP experiment that the Grateful did in the mid-70s that Billy Strings just reproduced and I took part in. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> so I've honestly am ashamed to say that I, I really would love to – I wanted to interview him for the podcast, but didn't look to see if he was still alive. He just – I assumed that he had passed away. Yeah, we had talked and, about that. Yeah, and then I saw him on the Billy Strings one, and I was like, oh, my God, he's very much alive and very lucid, like still at 89, um, just remarkable memory. And, uh, my God, the things that he has been interested in and delved deeply into, like the variety of things in his life, it's just staggering. Absolutely. Just staggering. Rolling Thunder being, like, such an important you know, uh, part of it too. And I think he met him through Mickey, I believe yeah. if that's, yeah. And, um, and I want to tell you, you know, for those of you who are listening, I think that I said this with the Victor Wooten one too. Uh, if you can watch this on YouTube, watch it. Cause boy, what a <laughs> trip. And he had this really, really, uh, San Francisco background filter thing. And he kept kind of turning into fog and coming back and, it was, it was just so, such a trip to watch, man. So I mean, his book that you know, probably his most famous is the varieties of anomalous experiences, and that's what it was like. It looked like he was like warping in and out of this other dimension, yeah, you know, the yeah, whole yeah. time. It looked like the beginning of Highway to Heaven, that old Michael Landon show. Where he just like <laughs> went off into the clouds. It but was the, great. Yeah. This man, was this cat so smart. It's just like and about so many things. I know. I know. Well, this is one of those neat things where, like, at right after the Billy Strings thing, you're like, we should try to get that guy. And sure enough, look what happens. He's on. So, boom. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Dr. Stanley Krippner, for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for uh, another spin with Comes a Time. We're here on Osiris, home to so many great podcasts. Check out all of them at OsirisPod.com. 
Join us over at patreon.com slash comes a time pod. Get your bus pass and take a trip with us. We go pretty weird places. So uh, enjoy the good doctor and uh, we'll see you next week. What an honor it is to have you, Professor Krippner. Um, I don't even know where to start, but we we uh, we usually just have a conversation. We really don't do interviews. Well, anything you want to do, much. fine. Your work your work is really top notch. I saw several of your videos, and you do very well. Oh, thank you. Yes, yeah, someone the other day asked if if like we could uh, figure out a like a theme to the podcast, and they kind of came up with real quick, like, like every good improvisational music jam it, the conversation just kind of finds the, where it's supposed to go. You know, sure. um, there's plenty of people doing interviews out there. We like to have conversations. Good point. That's true. Yeah. Well, kind there's of the a difference between an interview and a conversation. You're right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, the, the, the basic point kind of where I've, Wanted to start with this a jumping off point was I was uh, really struck by your a book I think it's a varieties of anomalous experiences and <clears throat> you know you said something about uh, not what you didn't want people to pathologize their experiences and that I thought that was it really struck me hard because Mike and I met when we met, we both kind of confessed to having these very powerful anomalous experiences that changed our lives. Right. And I wanted to have, they were positive, really awesome. The best mm. things that have ever happened to either of us, I would dare say, besides yep. marriage, birth of children, you know, which these, this preceded. So um, it was kind of the idea for the podcast. I was like, I want to talk about for I guess we term it spirituality, but it's all these different things so that other people who might be having these same things happen to them don't think they're nuts. So I really wanted to start there with you about talking about yeah. how you came to that uh, realization that that's what you wanted to do is help people not pathologize these experiences. I think that you've gone right to the core of a lot of my efforts, because when I got into the psychology field, I was actually appalled to find out that some of the experiences that my friends and I were having were seen as signs as mental illness. The most drastic example was when I was an undergraduate in college, and our psychology professor told us that anybody who dreams in color is schizophrenic. <laughs> yes, that's what he told us. And no. of course, uh -oh. <laughs> people in the classroom were taking him seriously. My friends and I looked back and forth. Well, we all have been dreaming in color. Does that mean we're schizophrenic? Well, this just shows you how far off base psychology was at the time. Now, as time went on and I became interested in psychedelics, these substances like LSD and psilocybin were hallucinogens. They induced hallucinations and hallucinations, of course, are false sensory impressions, visual or auditory or the like. And now we know that for the most part, 
what happens in psychedelic sessions is actually a breakthrough to a deeper reality, something that can lead to improved mental health. And so the word hallucination is really not appropriate. Hmm. And then when my colleagues and I came up with the idea of writing a book about anomalous experiences, we moved into a number of other areas that are often seen as pathological. For example, out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences, past life experiences, telepathy experiences. And we said, well, in some cases, they might be accompanied by mental illness. But for the most part, the research shows that people who have these experiences do not show signs of mental illness. And I've been distributing this news in books and interviews and articles, et cetera, as widely as possible so that people do not feel ashamed of their anomalous experiences and realize there's something to gain from them. They can really be transformational. They can really be breakthroughs. And in your case, they appear to be transformational. Yes, absolutely. And and you know what was so amazing, too? Uh, you took it a level further and uh, put the you know feet to the pavement and trained the therapists to be able to work with their patients so they were prepared you were we had a conversation last night with a uh, someone who has a terminal case of cancer and they're you know they've been practicing this you know helping the helper model and yeah. it was so it's so perfect in this you know throughput of our conversations there always yeah. seems to be one link leads to the other and you were you were doing that with therapists letting them know that your patients may have had very profound transformative experiences that you are not going to be, you know, privy to. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to say that the training sessions and the training programs for therapists and counselors is now by and large taking all of this into account. So therapists who are being trained today are getting a different type of training than therapists who were trained 40 or 50 years ago. So things are looking up on the training point, I'm happy to say. And I'm glad that our work has at least made a small contribution to this change in the way the therapists are changed, are trained. And some therapists still are uncomfortable dealing with some of these issues, but at least they're not going to be pathologizing their, their clients mm. and their patients. You know, I was... Uh... I wanted to ask you about kind of some of the overlaps in parapsychological and psychedelic experiences, because like as a teenager, uh, I've used an experiment. I don't want to say experimented with, but I used psychedelics um, on a very moderate level dosage wise, but my strongest, uh, spiritual or parapsychological or anomalous experiences have not been on psychedelics. I see the relation between the two, you know, and I feel like they're kind of useful for people that don't have naturally anomalous experiences like me and my mom and my sisters do. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I want you to try to talk a little bit about like, do you see overlaps between those two? Or connections? I think that the overlap is fairly easy to explain. 
first of all, there's no such thing as a psychedelic experience. People who take psychedelics informally or formally and have an experience can go in many different directions. Again, that depends on the three S's, the substance, the setting, and the set. Mm -hmm. So a person who takes a large amount of psychedelics will usually have a different experience than the person who takes a small amount. That's the substance. A person who takes pure psychedelics will have different experience than somebody who takes an impure or a counterfeit psychedelic. That's the substance. The setting is the situation that they are in, the place and the time of the experience. And then the set is what they bring in terms of their psychological readiness for the experience. Mm. All three, substance, set, and setting, work together to create a psychedelic experience. Now, that psychedelic experience can go in many different ways. And this is where the anomalous experiences come in. Sometimes the psychedelic experience goes to what we might call the sensory level, where colors are brighter, where music is more vibrant, where uh, strange Patterns appear on the wall or on the face of one's companions. Those are all sensory level. But then as one gets deeper, they move into a more what Masters at Jane Houston and Robert Masters call the recollective analytic set, where they start to connect that experience with things in their past, things from their life, things that are impinging upon them in terms of decisions they have to make. And then and sometimes this comes in different orders, symbolic, where symbolism takes place, where they come up with archetypal experiences, where they find themselves in ancient Rome or in a desert caravan. Mm. And of course, this is archetypal. It has special meaning for that person. I don't know, they don't necessarily know it at the time, but in tracing back, they can find out how that symbolizes some work that they're doing in their life, some struggle, some creative experience, some relationship experience. And then again, using the Gene Houston, Robert Masters uh, categories, the integral experience is where people come up with mystical experiences, spiritual experiences, not everybody gets that far, but those that do often feel a sense of oneness with their partner or a sense of oneness with the world or some of them feel that they're in the presence of God or of the spirit. And again, this can be very, very powerful. And in previous days, this would be looked upon as a psychotic hallucination. Right. No, no more. <laughs> this can be a very profound and transformative and life-affirming experience. So there you are. There is no such thing as the psychedelic experience. Each experience is a little bit different depending on what one takes, where one is, and what one brings to the experience. <laughs> we both ahead. took two yeah. big in. <laughs> Do you, Otila and I sometimes, we talk quite a bit about, you know, we both had very uh, uh, transformative experiences, not on psychedelics, but it sounds exactly mm -hmm. like everything that you just said. Do you believe that the psychedelic experience can happen without a substance? Oh, of course. One can have a... You wouldn't call it a psychedelic experience, but you could call it a vivid experience, a peak experience, sometimes a nadir or a negative experience, a plateau experience. 
yeah, there are other words that psychologists have used to describe these very profound experiences that can occur without a psychedelic substance. And again, if you look at the history of uh, indigenous cultures around the world, you find that most indigenous cultures did have mind-altering substances that they used in a sacred manner, but from time to time, they would get similar effects, again, by, now I'm going to use the initial D, drums dr and dreaming and uh, deprivation, sensory deprivation, yeah. and um, dancing. Any of those can trigger a very important type of uh, experience that takes a person deeper into one's psyche and into a communal situation with the environment or with another person. Hmm. And again, these are alterations in one's ordinary state of consciousness. Now, at the same time, I have to note that sometimes you can have a great insight in your ordinary state of consciousness. You don't have to. <clears throat> Depart from your ordinary state of consciousness, you can get an insult by appealing to your intuition or by conversation or by reading a powerful book or poem. And so there are many, many ways that people can have anomalous experience with psychedelics, without psychedelics, with their ordinary state of consciousness or in an altered state of consciousness. Doors are wide open for any of these possibilities. I'm always fascinated by uh, how once I had my crazy anomalous experience, I was told to go back and look at the religious experience in a different way. And now I see all these ties between anomalous experiences that happened to me not on psychedelic, on psychedelics, the ones that I had you know, when I was younger on psychedelics and then ones that I've had like in a church setting, because I feel like it's, it's just another road. You know, I would be in these black churches in Alabama where I lived for 18 years and man, the music and the dance and the everything came together to just create this, what I felt was like an anomalous experience, you know, and we don't, maybe half society thinks of religious people as crazy, but I'm like, if you've had that experience and you're a religious person, you don't care if anyone else gets it or not, because you're like, man, that's when you feel like what some people may call it the great spirit or whatever, you know, so I kind of, um, I, I've seen connections in my journey. And then when I ran into you, came across you on YouTube and stuff, it seems like you've done all that between the Native American stuff you did with Rolling Thunder, with the Grateful Dead, with psychedelics, with psychology, like hypnotherapy, hypnosis. You know, that's how Mike had his yeah. anomalous experience. Like, how did you get started with the hypnosis part of it? Oh, you put it very, very well. And fortunately, you were able to use your own background all of those years in Alabama, where you affiliated with any of the churches in Alabama, like the 
Baptist churches is very strong in Alabama. I, well, after my experience, yeah, I was like raised kind of anti-religion. And then when this experience happened, I've, I've reached out to church people that I knew. And, yeah. um, and it was really, yeah, I, I, I didn't grow up in Alabama. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and my parents are New Yorkers. But I lived in Alabama for 18 years from probably like 25 or so to whatever, you know, 35 uh that i'm sorry 45 but um yeah it was i still was i knew people in that community so i did interface with them after the fact right well as you probably know a person can have a spiritual experience without being a member of an organized religion yeah and that's why we use the term religion and spirituality uh, two different things. Sometimes they overlap. Hopefully they overlap. Yes. But many people in America today, in fact, the majority of people consider themselves spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. Church membership is at an all time low, less than 50 percent. But the number of people who consider them spiritual is going miles high. And by spiritual, they mean manifesting love, feeling a part of nature, having contact with other people at a deep level, have, having an openness to uh, whatever spirits or deities they might believe in. Yeah, these can be very spiritual experiences. And of course, we have enough research now indicating that the positive type of spiritual experience can actually be life transforming in a very healthy way. And the same thing can go for religious experiences. Unfortunately, there are too many people in organized religion that look upon anything outside of their framework as being the work of the devil or being heretical. Mm. They say, if you want to have a religious experience, you read the Bible or you read the Koran or you read the Talmud and adhere to the dictates there. No, it's not that simple. That narrows your possibilities. It narrows your prescription. I mentioned near-death experiences a while ago. Thousands of people have recorded what happened when they were clinically dead, but then came to and said, oh, I've just been in heaven. Most of these near-death experiences are very, very positive. Not all of them, most of them. And the interesting thing is they really don't follow the framework of the organized religion that the people were brought up in. Right. It's not the uh, paradise with angels playing harps and all of that mythical stuff. It's something that's much more profound and something where they greet loved ones, they greet family members, and then many of them don't want to leave. And then their loved ones say, no, you have to come back. Your time is not yet come. But yeah. when it does come, we'll be ready and waiting for you. Well, this is something that comes up in these near-death experiences, so often there is now an organization I belong to, the organization, the Association for Near-Death Studies. Thousands of people are communicating with each other by email, by uh, Zoom conferences, by virtual conferences to share these profound experiences with them. Another example of how something considered pathological, maybe 50 years ago, or impossible or a fabrication 
now is becoming mainstream and scientific research is being done on these experiences. Are you finding that uh, research and, and um, you know, the same type of uh, realizations are happening when it comes to past lives as well? Again, many, many years ago, people that claimed to have a past life experience were considered hallucinatory. Right. But now there is a great deal of evidence that most people in psychology like I don't even know about where people like my late friend Ian Stevens at the University of Virginia and his successors like Jim Tucker at the same university have actually interviewed people who claim to have had past life experiences and in some cases have actually tracked down who they claim to have been in a previous life. And yeah. oftentimes there is a fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a person <laughs> by such and such a name did exist. That person was killed in an airplane crash. And now what you're telling me dovetails with the details of that person's life. So the most important thing to realize is that past life reports cannot really be automatically written off as pathological. They're, they can be transformative. Are they evidence that the person actually did live before? Well, there is that possibility. But another possibility is this. Carl Gustav Jung, the famous psychoanalyst from 100 years ago, believed in the collective unconscious that all humanity is connected at very, very deep levels, mm -hmm. past and present included. What happens if a person access that collective unconscious and because of some similarity in terms of personality traits, fastens on to a person who did live before, incorporates those experiences into their own reports and comes wow. up with accurate material from a person who died 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. So there's also that possibility. I right. think the important thing to note is that no matter how you want to interpret this, these experiences cannot be pathologized for the most part and have to be taken uh, with a little bit of skepticism, but also with an open-minded attitude. Now, I say for the most part, because some people who claim to have past life experiences clearly are pathological. There was a famous case in a hospital in Michigan. Three patients all claimed that they were Jesus Christ in a past life. And the therapist brought all three of them together. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, God, this is a fascinating story. The book is called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. That was a comedian. Really uh, awesome. Yes, in Michigan, which found them all in the same mental institution. So, like I say, all past life experiences are not the same. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have one that I have to track down because I, my mentor was just a flat out anomalous person. His name was Colonel Bruce Hampton. And uh, he was so psychic and every other crazy thing you could imagine. And one day he said, I saw who you were last time. And I was like, what are you talking about? He would dream like I dream into the future. And that's my dream telepathy, which I want to get to with you. But he said, your name, you lived in Athens, Georgia, which I spent a lot of time in. That's where our band at that time recorded our first record. 
at a theater which used to be a morgue, <laughs> the Georgia <laughs> Theater. And um, he said, you lived in Athens, Georgia, and your name was Michael Cranford. Nice. So I had the name, the spelling, the place, everything. Wow. And one day, I've been kind of scared, honestly. That's why I haven't done it. But I know one day I'm going to have to go and look it up. And I'm going to be like, if there's a picture, I just am not prepared for what, you know, what that might all of a sudden, like, would you just remember a bunch of a whole life all of a sudden? Yeah. That's a little scary to me, you know. Well, it, it's interesting, too, because it's. I remember there was a, uh, you brought something up earlier um, about the difference between spiritual and religious experience, right? And some of those things being, you know, it's not the pearly gates. It's not the, all of the anomalous or experiences that I would say were life-changing on psychedelics or not. A lot of them in sensory deprivation tanks or under like mm. with hypnotherapy. I'm very lucky to have a very, an, an amazing hypnotherapist in my life who I'm, I'm extremely close with. And all of the experiences have two things in common. I didn't summon them. I didn't try to make something happen or find anything out. And my two eyes couldn't take in the size of what I was seeing. It was like I was seeing it from something else. And and that was in, in every single thing that I've had an experience with. Um, I'm surrounded by something way larger than th these two things can comprehend, but I could still see all of it. And those are the moments of when I just realized that trying to make this into something is, it's a, a futile effort, like just be there and let it happen. And those to me have always been the ones that I'm not going to try to explain them because I don't know what happened, but I was there for it and it did what it did and I'm grateful for it. And to me, those are the most like, you know, divine or spiritual, you know, experiences for sure. Oh, that's an interesting story. And again, this demonstrates how Many of these anomalous experiences can occur during psychotherapy, the type of psychotherapy mm -hmm. that goes deeply into a person's psyche, that allows for expression that's not being censored or criticized. And so, again, you don't need psychedelics if you have a good therapist. Yes. <laughs> or if you true. have a good therapist, the ther therapist will be open to the, your psychedelic experiences. I should mention that the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Petaluma, California, now has a website. People that has anomalous experiences can send in their anomalous experiences mm. to the Institute of Noetic Sciences, IONS, and they will record it. And this website contains hundreds, if not thousands, of materials that can be used for research. So if people want to donate their experience for research, it's yeah. now simple to do so. They just go to the IONS website and write in their experience and note if they want to be anomalous or give their actual name. This is just another example of how far anomalous experiences have come in the last few years. When we wrote the book, Varieties of Anomalous Experience, we got chapter editors from highly respected scientists who have been examining these particular topics. Some of the topics are very, very far out, like alien abduction experiences, where people claim that they've been abducted by aliens and put into a flying saucer and examined. Well, of course, the 
verdict is still open as to whether these are vertical or authentic. But the important thing is, if you look at the personality traits of these people, for the most part, these are not pathological people at all. Mm. These are people, when they take personality tests, fall into the realm of mainstream, ordinary, normal folks. But they are having an unusual experience for one reason or another. Have you had anomalous experiences like dreaming? Like I dream into the future. Have you had any stuff happen to you that did, wasn't triggered by anything? It just kind of happened? Well, I have had anomalous experiences in dreams where I've dreamed about something that actually took place a day or two or a week or two later. And sometimes these are very powerful experiences. Sometimes they're very minimal experiences. Like I had a dream about a celebrity by the name of Anne Francis, who is now deceased and motion picture star. And why am I having this particular dream about her? The very next day, I was looking at a website and it was mentioning some of the private foundations that were studying parapsychological phenomena. And there was the Anne Francis Foundation. I that she had actually started the small foundation to pursue her hobby, which was parapsychological experiences. Again, this is a very, very minor type of precognitive experience, but J.B. Priestley in his famous book, Man and Time, said that precognitive dreams can either be trivial or terrible. When they're terrible, they can forecast deaths of people, accidents of people. Well, the good news is that when Dr. Louisa Ryan from Duke University collected literally hundreds of precognitive experiences. She found out when the people had experiences about an accident or something drastic happening, in most cases, they were able to change it. And so the precognition was sort of a warning. And mm. they took steps so that the warning did not come true. For wow. example, mm. one dream was about a... Uh, mother who baby was in the crib, very, very poor family. They all lived in one bedroom. And she had a dream that the light fixture fell into the crib, killing her baby at exactly two o'clock in the morning. Oh, she woke up in panic and her husband, oh, just a dream. Don't pay any attention to it. But mm -hmm. she insisted on taking the baby out of the crib and into their bed. They went to sleep. At two o'clock, there was a crash. Sure enough, the light fixture had fallen off the wall and oh had God. fallen into the crib. <clears throat> this is just one of many examples where sometimes these precognitive dreams are not meant to come true. They're meant to be a warning so that they do not come true. There's I've always a possibility of, of, free will, of free will and intervention. Interesting. Because, see, I always wrestle with that because mine are always trivial. Always. The most trivial 15 seconds to five seconds. It's just like, why? I just kind of skip ahead. But that's really interesting to know that there's those two types. And oh, uh, yeah, so most now of, be on the lookout for the warning one if it happens. Right. You're in good company. Most of these precognitive dreams are trivial. And why not? 
when you're dreaming, you leave your ordinary sense of past, present, and future. The dream doesn't make these decisions right. or divisions. In a dream, past, present, future are all one, and they get mixed up. Oh, that's why I try to tell people, I'm like, we are the time machines. <laughs> like, yeah, well, time's time, linear, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's well, we think it's just linear. Right. But we can, you know. Yeah. And so I'm really glad to know because it immediately – my theological brain, you know, I mean, I know we have free will, but when you dream into the future, like, okay, so is that a choice then? Or does the program or God or whatever you want to call it know what my choice is going to be before I make it? So how much free will is there? But when you now when you introduce this into it, that changes the whole ballgame. Because now if you could deliberately, if someone sent you that as a warning it for you to deliberately change it, that's something I never considered before. So thank you for that. That's deep. And thanks for listening. We'll be right back with more on Comes a Time. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at SmartWool. For more than 25 years, SmartWool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They are here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. Well, Rolling Thunder was a Native American medicine man who I worked with. He was on the earth, still alive. And he claimed to have memories of his two most recent past lives. Mm. And they were all in Native American settings, all between mm. the Europeans came to North America. And he felt that those two past lives gave him the material that he could use in this life to help and to heal people. Mm. Your, your experiences with him, um, I've, done, I've listened to so many of them listen to you talk about so many times about him and uh what an unbelievable person to have must have known you know i mean like you're you're the story with the coyote when he oh, that was crazy yeah he called in the coyote and no chickens were <laughs> were injured in the filming of this <laughs> it's pretty amazing stuff being around him must have been such an unbelievable like just to feel that presence of of you know the strength that he had in his spirit mm. He's a, he was, a he was right. He, you met him through Mickey Hart, correct? Pardon me? You met him through Mickey Hart? Oh, good heavens. Yes. Yes. Uh, that was quite a story. Mickey Hart kept telling me about Rolling Thunder and how he wanted me Rolling Thunder who lived uh, in Nevada. And one day he actually charted a plane a small plane to go to Nevada and pick up Rolling Thunder and bring him to San Francisco where Mickey Hart and the Grateful Dead were trying out new material under a different name, Mickey Hart and the... Of course, everybody in the audience knew they were actually the Grateful Dead, but because they were trying out new material, they didn't want to take a chance of it going sour 
and besmirching the name of the Grateful Dead. So I was able to, uh, with Mickey's help, go to the concert. And during the intermission, who should come down the aisle but this handsome Native American man with a buckskin suit, white buckskin suit, and a beautiful woman on either arm. And they came right over to me, and I said, you must be Rolling Thunder. He said, you must be Dr. Krippner. Wow. So that is how we met. And like they say, like they say the rest is history. <laughs> we all went up to Mickey's Ranch for the, uh, for the night, and I had many worthwhile talks with Rolling Thunder the next day. And then I would see Rolling Thunder whenever he came to town or whenever I visited him in Nevada. Eventually, Mickey Hart and the Grateful Dead were able to purchase some land so the Rolling Thunder could start a community, a healing community called Metatante, Land of the Friendly People. And that lasted for several years. And I had many incredible experiences at that particular uh, spiritual center. I'll just mention one or two. Rolling Thunder needed water. There was no well on that land. The land was bought at a fairly cheap price. And one of the reasons was there was no spring, no water. Rolling Thunder took his little dowsing stick. And I didn't see him do this, but he told me he went over the land. And when the sick went down, he told his people, dig and you will find water. And they did. And that wow. became a well. Yes, I saw the well. But then Rolling Thunder said, now we need water at the other end of the ranch. And so he took his dowsing stick again, went to the other end, went down, and again, people found water. So here, when I visited, there were two springs of water where there had never been springs before. Wow. And something I did witness firsthand, one night, Rolling Thunder wanted me to come with him to the edge of the property. The edge of the property led to a forest, and Rolling Thunder started to Hoot, 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 in this very strange voice. And then we heard some hoots coming back. And sure enough, some coyote came out of the forest, a pack of coyote. Mm -hmm. And they came right up to us so close I could actually have reached out and touched one of them. I didn't. I wanted to play it safe. But Rolling Thunder and the leader of the pack started hooting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then they left. I said, Rolling Thunder, what was that all about? He said, well, we have this pact. We won't track them down and shoot them and kill them, and they won't raid our chicken coops. That worked. They never lost a single chicken to coyote all the years that the Metatonti was in existence. Beautiful. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I tell all of those stories in my book, this uh, Voice of Rolling Thunder, and, of course, Mickey Hart and the Grateful Dead play a very important part in that book because of the connection with the Grateful Dead and how I met Rolling Thunder through Mickey Hart. Now, how did you meet the Grateful Dead? Because you, you didn't do psychedelics, right? Pardon me? You did not do psychedelics. Oh, I have correct? used psychedelics in the past, yes. Many At times. The, by the time that you met but, the Grateful Dead? Yeah, but that, that's how I met, not, not how I met the Grateful Dead. But that's a whole different story. Ah. I had a very close friend, Gene Millay, a uh, uh, very capable artist. And years ago, she was the girlfriend of Ala Raka, the famous tabla player. Yes. 
Todd, well, you know who he was. He played Tabu with Ravi Shankar. And she said she was going to have a party in their apartment. And that was the night of the concert. A friend of mine and I went to hear Ravi Shankar and Alaraka, and then we went to the party. And Gene had fixed some delicious Indian food, many, many people at the party. And Gene said, by the way, there's a musician who's coming to the party. He's studying Tabal with Alaraka, and he wants to talk to you about hypnosis. And I said, fine. Well, halfway through the party, in came Mickey Hart. He made a very dramatic entrance. He was dressed in a white and black Harlequin suit with a long black <laughs> ponytail, and he attracted a lot of attention. He greeted Alaraka because he was studying Alaraka, and then he wanted to talk to me about hypnosis. Off we went to a private room. Why do you want to talk to me about hypnosis? He had several students. As you know, Mickey plays several instruments, dozens of percussion instruments, but also he's a fairly good uh, guitar player and plays multi-talented guy, as you know. So he told me what he was doing with hypnosis, trying to get his students to focus on practicing and giving them motivation for practicing. I gave him some tips. I said, you know, hypsis, hypnosis is very easy to learn. It's very hard to use effectively, however, many possible dangers. So I covered the waterfront and he was very, very grateful. And then just as he was about to go, he said, you like rock music. Of course, I love rock music. I went to hear the Grateful Dead just last night. And then he beat, oh, then you heard me play. Well, without that question, I never would have met Mickey Hart, never would have met Rolling Thunder. Wow. But by asking that question and my response, that paved the way for a lifelong friendship. That's incredible. See, that's like an anomalous experience itself. See? <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Like I say, not all anomalous experiences happen under the influence of drugs, dreams, dancing, deprivation, or drumming, right? Yes. Yeah. But that's how I see it. I see like hypnosis is a, is a branch of the same tree as trance, which you could get to through drumming, dancing, deprivation, fasting, meditation is another. But, you know, they're all like they're all these roads to the. They're very short roads to the same thing They're very close or roads that are very close together. The religious experience, the. You know, when I, I played with African drumming groups when I was younger, you know, you do that for about four hours, man. You're going to be having anomalous experiences. You You'll be time traveling and dimension traveling and mm. all. You're just this psychedelics is a pale comparison, actually, you know, for those deep trance experience. Yeah. I think the spinners at dead concerts, I think they're like right in there man oh you are so right and as you know at one point actually 50 years ago jerry garcia said you know maybe what you do with your dream lab studying dream telepathy could be enhanced at one of our concerts because people go into altered states even if they haven't taken yeah. lsc or smoked marijuana before the concert hearing the rock music takes him into an altered state. And so I said, well, fine, we can arrange an experiment 
And so for six nights, we had a research assistant in the control booth. And after about an hour of the concert, he flashed a slide on the screen. You are about to participate in the ESP experiment. Next slide. Malcolm Besant is a psychic in Brooklyn at the Dream Laboratory at Maimonides Medical Center. You will see a picture. Try to use your ESP to send the picture to Malcolm. And then the assistant flipped a coin and heads bent one picture, tails bent another picture. Up to that point, we had no idea what the picture was. He popped the slide into the projector and it showed up on the screen in living color. And the Grateful Dead talked a little bit about the slide and then continued their concert while the people ostensibly tried to send the image to the English psychic Malcolm Besson, who is in the lab. And in those six nights, uh, we actually had some very close correspondences between the picture and Malcolm Besson's dreams. In statistics, when we went against the odds, the matches were statistically significant and we actually were quite surprised. Six nights isn't a very long night for a study like this. So it worked fairly well. We published the article and believe it or not, that article has been republished many, many times, more so than any of our mainstream experiments. And just this year, 50 years to the, to the week, Billy Strings and his group did a series of six concerts yeah. at the Capitol Theater, the same theater, in homage to our old Grateful Dead experiment. So that experiment lives on. It does indeed, because that's how I found you, because <laughs> I was part of that experiment uh, the night before you came on, I believe. And uh, I actually forgot about that. It wasn't really planning to talk to you about it, but I feel like I should. I've When you've said that, I was like, let me pull this up. They did that same thing. They didn't tell the audience who it was till I guess, whenever the appointed time. And they put up this picture of two eyes. I actually have it here. Um, and it was really crazy because I was scared about participating in this type of experiment because my telepathy usually is dreams. It's not like sit back and empty your mind and see if you can see a picture I'm sending you. So even though I'm very woo-woo, I thought, well, this is not my lane but this this was the picture that they had everybody concentrate oh, on. Oh, that's remarkable, yes. Right. So yes. I sat down and, you know, I didn't uh, – I emptied my mind and I just got it. He had sent us a pad and paper and it, you could see it says you are about are. to participate <laughs> in a – and that's what I drew. A spoon, a, a tuning yes. fork, a boat, and an owl – and this was the owl in this triangle and half circle was supposed to be an Egyptian hieroglyph. And then I wrote mirror in a mirror image. I'm not sure yeah. if that shows right. So then they, at the set break, they came through and they said, okay, this is the image we sent you. What did you draw? And I showed him this and he goes, well, the owl kind of has big eyes. Maybe that was it. And I was like, yeah, that's close, but not it. But wh what happened next was, I didn't find this out till the next day. A band that was playing the after party part of that night that I was on is called the Kitchen Dwellers. Uh, they weren't 
at the Cap Theater, they were in another place, but after Billy got done, then the stream continued with this band. Well, this band had a poster, oh. right? Yes. The owl. I showed you a triptych. The boat. Yes. Oh, man. I had a spoon and a tuning fork. So my manager was like, dude, uh, I got something to tell you. <laughs> and he's a real believer in the mystical too. Mm-hmm. In fact, he has this thing with 1111 and I have a thing with 1212. So when we met, I was like, ah, I think there's something here. And when he sent me this, I was like, oh my goodness. I hit three times. Like it was... It was really weird. So, and then the next night I was watching and I saw you were on and I was like, wait a minute. I I hate to even admit this. I didn't think you were still alive (laughs) because I found you like on a UFO podcast. I think, I think that's where I found your name. And I, and then when I looked you up, I saw the connection with Mickey Hart and I was like, wait a minute. And uh, so I was like, immediately, I said, we have to get Stanley Krippner. <laughs> this guy is one of the greatest. Yep. And not only is he still here, but extremely lucid. So it was really an ESP experiment that is how I found you. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, you go at the end of these experiences, you never know what direction they're going to go and what the aftermath is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Well, and it's interesting hearing about your pat. Like you know, I heard you talking about your childhood and how, as a child, you ended up uh, beginning to really be fascinated with Native American culture because you had a um, an Arrowhead collection. I didn't hear that. You had uh, as a child, you had an Arrowhead collection, right? And right. You were able, and that started your interest in in the Native American culture. Oh, good heavens, yes. Yes, I was interested in Native American culture from my earliest days because I lived on a farm, and this was in the days before my father could afford a tractor, and he had a horse and plow plowing up the earth, and every now and again he would find an Indian arrowhead. And so I had a nice collection of Indian arrowheads, and that motivated me to read about the Potawatomi Indians who used to live in that area, and of course, reading about the Indians, I've started to read about the medicine men and medicine women. And so that interest sort of continued with me over the years. And then many, many years later, when I was in New York City at Maimonides Medical Center doing the dream telepathy experiments, I was invited to join a forum in Buffalo, New York. And one of the speakers was Grandmother Twyla Nitsch, a Native American shaman and medicine woman. This is the first shaman I actually met face to face. And we became good friends. And that led me further into meeting more medicine people, more shamans. And then when I began to travel, I met shamans from other cultures. Now, remember that they go by different names. Each culture, each indigenous culture has its own name for shaman. And... Mm -hmm. Shaman is actually an anthropological term that anthropologists use to cover the waterfront. But to be a shaman, one has to have a community. One has to be called by a community as well as for their own inner calling. And the shaman does things that other people in the community cannot do. 
the shaman gets information, gets information and knowledge from drugs, dreaming, dancing, uh, drumming, deprivation. Yeah. And then they bring this information back to help and heal members of the community. And so the shaman is actually a community appointed practitioner and works on behalf of the community. It's not an easy task, not an easy task at all. Some people are called and they try to reject the call. No, they get sick if they reject the call. Hmm. The call keeps coming to them. Yeah. I visited a shaman in Brazil and she put it this way. When the spirit comes knocking on the door, you have to open it. There's no way to keep the spirit out. Yeah. So shamans are a very special group of people. Unfortunately, there are still shamans around today. The important thing is one cannot call themselves a shaman. This has to come from a community. And the shaman is always in service of some community, maybe a virtual community now, again, these days, but a community nevertheless. Yeah, it's like religion has kind of debased these original, although it does happen even within the religious framework, the pure thing does still happen. But, you know, like you say, it seems for the large part, it's kind of just a shell of what the original intent was, you know, which is, a, it's a definitely, I mean, pastors, I know my theology mentor, you have to be called for that stuff because people die every day. People are getting married every day. People are cheating every day. Families are breaking up every day and you're just like on call. He was called by the community to be their Christian shaman, basically. And it was a, it was quite a weight of responsibility. Like, I don't think you could do it unless you were called to do it. It's just too much. Oh, you're absolutely right. There's a great deal of responsibility that shamans take on. You can see why some of them are very hesitant to accept the call. And then, of course, the shaman has to go undergo some type of training. Yeah. And typically, the shaman undergoes training on the hands of an older shaman or a shaman from another community. But sometimes the shaman is trained by people in the spirit world. Mm. One shaman I met in Indonesia, I've written about by the name of Rohana Lair. And Rohana had a son who had a high fever. The doctors could not help him. They said he'll be dead in a few weeks. And then Rohana had a dream and an elderly spiritual figure came to her in the dream and said, I will teach you how to cure your son. But in exchange, you must become a dukun. That's the Indonesian word for shaman. Mm. And she said, look, I'll do anything. Just make my son well. And so the elderly male spirit uh, gave her a ring and said, you take this ring and you apply it to your son every hour. and." put the ring on his head and he'll be cured in a few days. She woke up there. She had a ring on her finger out of nowhere. Wow. She it, and the son recovered. And then the spirit came to her over the course of the next few months, giving her lessons on how to help and cure people. And when I visited her, there were so many people working and waiting for her that they had to choose a number. 
And then they sat down, talked with each other. And then when their number came up, they went to the shaman's uh, private, the Dukun's private quarters, and she would do the healing on them. Uh, her healing took a number of roots, maybe giving them herbs, maybe them giving special prayers, uh, having them read from the Koran because she was Indo she was a Muslim, of course, Indonesia. And she has established a reputation that's known actually throughout the whole area. Wow. So I this is we, a case where the spirits taught her, taught her how to become a, a shaman. We have one like that nowadays. Uh, there's a cat called the medical medium. What is his name? Anthony. Ah, I should be shot. He really helped my wife. With the whole, you know, the whole celery juice craze really it's, came from him because it heals so many things. But he was taught by a spirit. He calls him spirit. He sat, he said, uh, I heard the story. I heard him tell the story. He was very young and his grandmother, they were having a family dinner and his grandmother's at the other end of the table and a spirit, I believe a male spirit stood behind his grandmother and said to him, um, cancer or lung cancer or something like that. And, um, and he's like, what? And it said lung cancer. And so he just said it as a child, grandma lung cancer. And they're like, what? And he just, he's like, you know, this dude was standing there and said, grandma lung cancer. I mean, he didn't even have any understanding from what I understand of what a lung or a cancer was, you know? So uh, they let it go. And then a couple of weeks later, they're like, let's just check, you know? And sure enough, they had it. She caught it early. Wow. Now he was told by the spirit that he was going to have to do this. Like, it was like an apology. Like, I'm sorry, but this is why you were created this time. And he had tried to get away from it and he just couldn't, you know, and uh, eventually he accepted it. And now he's become extremely popular and has actually helped my wife himself. And what was the guy, the psychic in the old days? He was... I, Ah, oh, my brother was so into him. We used to live right beside the Association for Research and Enlightenment in Virginia Beach. We lived right down the street from it. And my brother who passed away uh, a couple of years ago used to spend so much time there. Remember the old psychic guy that used to heal people? And he wasn't even really well-educated. He was a real simple guy, but he would fall into this sleep state. And then people came from all over. I should Google it. I'm sure you would know him if I said his name. <clears throat> but um, he had, I think it was a spirit thing in that case of what he wasn't taught by someone else, you know? Absolutely. You'd be interested in knowing that the Association for Research and Enlightenment, the Edgar Casey Foundation. Of Edgar Casey, that's it. Actually invited Rolling Thunder to give a talk. And hmm. I was not there at the time, but I have the information from several witnesses. Rolling Thunder was supposed to do some healing, and so he sent a friend of mine to buy some raw steak. My friend had no idea why he needed raw steak, but bought the steak and brought it back, and Rolling Thunder had two cots, and a young male student was on each cot. 
These were young men who were so sick they could not go to school. And the young man on the one cot was the first one to be healed. And Rolling Thunder put the stake by the side of the cot and took out his eagle feather and began poking. This was a way of healing. He would often take a eagle feather and poke it on different points of the uh, patient's body. And while he was doing this, that stake began to sizzle and it evaporized. Dozens of people watched it turn to the vapor. And the young man sat up. He said, oh, I feel fine. And you know, the young man was back in school. The other case did not work as well. The young man was not responding and the stake did not sizzle. And Rolling Thunder finally t- turned to my friend and said, you know, his mother is in the way. She's blocking the healing. She does not want her son to be healed. And unfortunately, the mother did not want the son to get well because he was her companion with her in school. She would lose his companionship. And so he went home still sick. Wow. Yeah. So there are certain parameters and shamans cannot do the whole thing. Shamans have to have the help of a community of mm-hmm. at least one person uh, to support what they are doing. Wow. Well, you know, even Jesus, you know, in some in the older book, you know, Mark is the old book, the oldest book. And you'll see differences between that one uh, where it shows him not being able to do some stuff like in the case of Matthew, where it would say he just chose not to. So he would say uh, he went in this town and could not heal people because they didn't have faith. Like they needed to participate. You see him say that many times. Your faith has saved you. Your part in this is is part of this healing. You know, it's not just me doing it, you know, and it'll do other things like when he went into the desert. You know, Mark will say he was driven into the desert by the spirit. And then Matthew will say he just went into the desert like it was his choice. But you see kind of a different story and a different depiction slightly in the older story. And uh, it really, yeah, it speaks to that. The other person, the shaman can't just, he's not a magician. No. (laughs) He can't do everything, (laughs) you know, and you can block it even, you know. That's fascinating. Well, a similar story I can tell you occurred when I was in South Africa. And I was invited to give several lectures, and I said, okay, in exchange, I want to meet some of the famous Zulu shamans in South Africa called Sangomas. As I say, each group has its own name for shamans. And so they drove me into the African belt out miles from nowhere, and we went to the home of somebody uh, who was a shaman and interviewed her, and said, oh, but you should meet the great shaman. Interviewed another person. Oh, she'd meet the great shaman. So finally, we found out where the great shaman was living, and we went to the village, and they directed us to this home, and we went and waited for the great shaman to appear. While we were waiting, a woman came in crying and bereft, went over to the corner, was crying, oh, this is going to be a patient. This poor, miserable wretch is going to wait for the great shaman to heal her. And then one of the townspeople came, 
that is the great shaman. Oh, wow. This is a great shaman. She needs healing herself. Wow. We went over and talked with her and found out she just returned from a family gathering. Her sister was so jealous of her. She said, you're the great shaman. You're eating all the glory, all the money. What about the rest of the family? You're turning your back on the family. And the great shaman was so bereft that she just was huddled off in the corner. Well, once we found out, I said, look, we have the same problem in our country. It's called sibling rivalry. Sometimes <laughs> brothers and sisters are jealous of the shaman because they're getting so much attention. They don't realize what hard work it is to become a Sangoma. Well, then she perked up and she was very affable and she called on her daughter and they did a wonderful drumming ceremony for us with two different drums, which I was allowed to record. And so everything worked out very well. We got her story. And her story was that as a young girl, she had epilepsy and the doctors could not help her. And in desperation, she went to the local shaman, the local Sangoma. And the local Sangoma said, my dear, have you had any dreams? What a silly question. Of course, I've had dreams. Well, what do you dream? Well, I dream that I am by a river and I'm being pulled into the river and I can breathe underwater. And the old Sangoma said, my dear, this means you truly become one of us. You can breathe underwater. You're able to exist in a world that only shamans can enter. Wow. You come to me and I will teach you how to heal yourself. But in exchange, you have to become a Sangoma yourself. Well, this took the young woman by surprise. She went home and that night she had a grand mal seizure. She thought she was about to die. She came back there, I'll do anything, I'll do anything. But one thing, I was raised a Christian. I don't want to give up Jesus Christ. And the old Sangoma said, my dear, as a shaman, as a Sangoma, you'll need all the power you can get. <laughs> And mm. Jesus Christ is a very, very powerful spirit. Tell him to call his friends. <laughs> so he That's had the great. Zulu tradition and the Christian yes. tradition. Wow. And on the wall of her, on the wall of her healing room, picture of Jesus Christ and a picture of Shaka, the famous Zulu warrior. Wow. And this is how oh, she Shaka became Zulu. the great Sangoma. Amazing. Wow. Oh, love the story. Yeah. Hey, I know I'm helping the I helpers, is, right? Kind of left out of left field, and Mike, Amazing. I know you've got to go. And uh, did you ever know this psychic named Ingo Swan? Oh, good heavens! Ingo Swan and I were old friends. Ah. Yes, yes, Ingo Swan. Unfortunately, is no longer with us. But I he know. Extreme, uh, extremely His book, penetration really profoundly. I don't want to say changed my life, but just but so much confirmation and affirmation of things that I've experienced, anomalous things. So I'm so glad to know someone that actually knew him. Maybe we can have you back at some point and we can talk about him and, you know, hypnosis and the other million things that you're so an expert at. <laughs> um, you have Ingo Swan's last book? What was the very last one? I'm not sure. It's a, a book that his friends wrote about him after he passed on. Oh, if you don't no. have it, send me an email and I will mail uh, you a copy. Oh, I want that one. I have an extra copy and I wrote a chapter on him for that book. Really? Yes. Oh, for those I... who have never heard of Ingo Swan, he was actually 
Uh, well, he was a very talented artist. Yes. And he had psychedelic experiences without the benefit of psychedelics. He would go into outer body experiences. He'd go into the astral realm. He would go into outer space. He'd bring back these incredible landscapes and create beautiful paintings. And he actually was approached by science, re uh, by science research in Stanford University. Yeah. Stanford and Research Institute. Who was responsible yeah. for what we now call remote viewing. And yes. he was able to remote view himself and go to other places, other times, and come back with accurate information. And he came back with information that was very accurate in terms of uh, what he was sent to do. So at one point, he actually went to the Soviet Union and brought back information about a secret uh, 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 nuclear site. Yes, he did incredible things. And fortunately, he recorded everything. Um, his people at SRI, uh, Stanford Research uh, Institute, kept a record of it. And so now all of those records are available for the public to read. But he made wonderful contributions. And he was, as I say, his reputation could stand on the basis of his artwork. But then in addition to that, he made all of these contributions to what we call remote viewing. Yes, for people who don't know, when I did that ESP experiment <clears throat> with Billy Strings, I brought, I mentioned his name, I brought him up. And those things, that remote viewing he did, he was paid very handsomely by the CIA for what he, just so people know. You know, psychics work for police departments. They work for the CIA, FBI. Yes. They may try to poo-poo it, but, you know, mm. did, did you know Robert McMonagle? Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Oh, we have got uh, to talk again. A very talented remote viewer, absolutely. Yeah, like for, for skeptics, if you want to hire Robert McMonagall, it's going to cost you 10 grand just yes, yes. to uh, get started. He's going to need that retainer. So regardless of where you believe it or not, he's so good that he could command that kind of money. I, it might have gone up since I've got that information but yeah well, but on, the, on the other hand it's a little more complicated than that the reason he charges so much money is that what he does takes a great deal of energy from him yeah. and by putting the price tag so high he has fairly few people who are able to use his yes. services otherwise he'd be busy all the time <laughs> That's right. when, you have a, when you have a talent like this you really have to guard it and so you don't get burned out yeah. That's right. <laughs> Oh, man, what a pleasure having you, yeah, uh, Dr. Krippner. I'm just blown away. Thank if you. I, thank if, you. If the opportunity ever comes for the voice of Rolling Thunder to become an audio book, that would be really incredible. Yes, that's what I read. I would, it's, a, it's one I'd, I've definitely read and I would like to hear. Uh, the, the right narrative in that oral tradition can really bring that book, you know, to, 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 you know, a lot of ears and it's an unbelievable read. So it's really an honor to meet you, sir. Definitely. Thank you. Oh, you're very kind. I'm so glad we had the conversation. Absolutely. Osiris. It's NFL draft season. And that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 